Well, if you would, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1, and beginning in verse 5. That's where we'll be picking up this morning in our verse-by-verse study of this gospel. It's too good to be true. You ever heard anybody say that before? Have you ever said that before? Have you ever been made an offer that seemed too good to be true? You were skeptical. You were waiting for the catch, uh, wondering how this offer could possibly be real. Uh, Way back in the 1960s, Marshall McLuhan, uh, he's the same guy who famously said, the medium is the message, Uh, but he also said this. He said, the church's problem is that the gospel is good news in a world in which bad news is news. In other words, in our day, people expect news to be bad news. And people are quick to believe bad news. Bad news does not surprise them. But the gospel, the message of salvation by Jesus Christ, It's a different kind of news. It involves believing in miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection. But for some, even believing in the miracles is less difficult than believing that there could really be hope for someone like them. When they hear of heaven and they hear us talk of a God who loves them so much that he would send his son to die for them, they think it's impossible. There must be a catch. It's just too good to be true. Uh, Albert Camus, the famous French atheist novelist, has his hero in one of his novels say, salvation is much too big a word for me. I don't aim so high. For the atheists, the blessings offered in the gospel are more wonderful than could possibly be true in a world like ours. It's a tragedy that many will spend eternity in hell because they heard the gospel, but they did not take God at his word because it just seemed like extraordinarily good news. Too good to be true. Well, this morning, we're going to spend some time with a man named Zechariah, and he's not an atheist. He is a faithful believer in God. He's a priest, but he's going to receive some news that seems too good to be true. And so look at what happens. Let's pick up verse 5, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, remember those are dark days. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when His division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, as we said last time, the year is 6 BC. And remember, this is a special week for Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, both advanced in years. They've come from their hometown in the hills of Judea to Jerusalem. This is the one week of the year when Zechariah's priestly order gets to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. And even though he has come to Jerusalem many times in his life, we are sure Zechariah could not help but yet again be impressed by the visual splendor of that city. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is much larger and much grander now under Herod the Great than it had ever been before under David, under Solomon. Those cities didn't compare to Jerusalem now under Herod. There are now palaces and citadels. There's a theater and an amphitheater. Herod has built new bridges. He's introduced new and improved engineering techniques and there are public monuments that have been erected throughout the city. And of course, from practically anywhere in the city, you just look towards the Temple Mount and see the massive, gleaming, gold-covered temple that stood not over only the broader temple complex, but it truly stood over the entire city. Uh, Jerusalem would have been very busy, uh, the wall around the city was about four miles in circumference, and yet within that four miles, there were many thousands of people. At least 80,000, that's the minimum argument. Some ancient historians use figures as high as 600,000 people within this small circle. It seems most likely that Jerusalem probably typically had around a population of 100,000 people but on special feast days, when people came into the city, the population could sometimes hit more than a million. For an ancient city, this was a massive amount of people. There were several different gates in the wall. And as people came in and out of Jerusalem through those gates, they had to pass custom stations. They had to pay taxes on the goods that they brought in or out of the city. Construction was happening everywhere. Roman soldiers walked the streets. 
the Antonia Fortress was this huge military barracks that had been built right beside the Temple Mount. And it had this large tower where st- soldiers were always stationed looking over and watching all of the activity in the temple complex. And so all of this would have been seen by Zechariah as he comes to the city yet again for his weekly term of service. There is something else he would have noticed as he came into the city. It was very smelly. Uh, Jerusalem had a wonderful drainage system for its day, and excess waste was picked up and carted out every day through the appropriately called Dung Gate. But at the very center of Jerusalem's economy was the temple sacrifices. Every day, Jews from all over the region and beyond were coming into the city and they were coming with their animals. On a regular day, several thousand animals were sacrificed at the temple. On a holy day, the sacrifices could reach into the hundreds of thousands, even higher. You can see why many priests would have been needed on these days. We have passages in the Talmud that talk about days at the temple where priests were wading knee-deep through the blood of the animals. So animals are everywhere in Jerusalem, along with animal droppings and all else that comes with animals. And so it was a very smelly place. And there's a reason why there were several city pools scattered throughout the city where people could step in and wash themselves and clean themselves off. Myrrh and other perfumes were considered particularly valuable because they helped mask kind of the the natural stink of the city. And so here is Zechariah in Jerusalem. He's been here many times before, over many decades. This is his priestly orders week to serve. But this is not just a special week. This is a very special day in the life of Zechariah. In some ways... This is the most important day of Zechariah's life. Why? Because when priests came to Jerusalem, they served in the temple courts. They served in the temple complex. But to actually go into the temple? To actually go into the holy place, the room with the showbread and and the holy table and the holy lampstand? That was a very rare privilege and lots were cast to see who would get that privilege and on this day the lot was cast and it fell to Zechariah it's important to understand this was a once in a lifetime opportunity once a priest had served one time in the holy place he would never have the option of serving there again you could only serve there once if the lot ever fell on you And so this was the one and only time that Zechariah would ever step foot into the temple. So think of it. Put yourself in his sandals, right? He's he's walking through the courts. He's walking up the stairs one after the other towards the door of the temple. You can imagine what must have been going through his mind, his feelings as he opens the sacred door. And he walks in and the door closes behind behind him. And here he is alone. In the holy place. And he looks up. And the ceiling is ten stories above his head. And by the way, that's just the ceiling of the first floor. 
There's an upper chamber that sits above that one. He looks at the walls stretching up 10 stories high, and they are completely plated with gold. So this is just gold rising higher and higher and higher above him, except for one wall. Because one wall isn't a wall at all. It is a massive curtain, a 10 stories high curtain, a curtain taller, larger than any curtain that you've probably ever seen. And Zechariah knows what's on the other side of that curtain. Remember, the actual temple itself is two rooms. The holy place where Zechariah is and the most holy place on the other side of that curtain. Only the high priest could go to the most holy place. He can only go in beyond the curtain one day a year. Um, It used to be that the Ark of the Covenant would have been there, the, 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 the tablets of the law, the manna, Aaron's staff, but all of that was lost when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. So in this temple, inside the Holy of Holies, there was just a raised place in the floor to show where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood at that raised place in the floor. Well, God's intense, special presence was said to dwell just beyond that curtain in that most holy place. I kind of doubt he even got close to it. <laughs> I, you know, I imagine he kept his distance from the curtain. But think about how amazing it must have been for him. As an old man, his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be that close to God's special, powerful presence. It, it was said to be the place where heaven met earth behind that curtain. Jewish history tells us a rope would be tied around the high priest when he went in because if he was to have a medical emergency in there, which could happen when you're so anxious on the Day of Atonement, uh, no one could go in after him. And so they had to pull him out with a rope. So Zechariah, he's, he's in the holy place and he turns his attention to what he's here to do uh, in that room. It, it's a big room and there's not much furniture. <laughs> there's not much in the room. There's there's. The table, the holy table, on which there's the plate with the bread of the presence. There's a lampstand. It's basically a a menorah giving light to the room, uh, causing the, you can imagine it's causing the gold on the walls to just shine. And the only other piece of furniture in that room is the altar for burning incense. And the altar's taller than the other furniture. It sits about three feet high. It's covered in gold. And it sits right in front of that massive curtain. And that altar is why Zechariah is here. Each day, priests were to come into this room and they were to offer a morning offering of incense and an evening offering of incense. And it appears from what we can tell from the text that Zechariah was probably given the privilege of the evening offering And when we say evening, we're not talking about nighttime. We're talking about 3.30 in the afternoon. This was also a time for prayer. And so there were people outside praying. In all the various courts of the temple, people have been praying. And Zechariah has not come into the room empty-handed. He has with him, in, in some sort of a pan, a burning coal 
that has been taken from the altar outside. So he's brought this pan with burning coal from outside. He also has with him the incense that he's to burn. It was a mixture of three spices and some salt blended together, mixed with frankincense, and then beaten into a powder that he's going to throw on the altar. By the way, no one else in Israel was allowed to ever use this particular incense in their homes. This was a, this was a recipe that was to be used only in the temple. And so Zechariah places the coal upon the altar, and then he pours out the powder upon it. And the immediate result is this intensely sweet and pleasant aroma that comes from the altar. And yet that isn't all that Zechariah is here to do, because he's a priest and he's representing the people of God. And the main job he has is now to pray. In fact, the whole reason that God commanded the burning of incense and the pleasing aroma was to teach his people that it is pleasing to him when they pray. Zechariah is here to pray on behalf of Israel and to seek God's blessing on the nation. And of course, Zechariah has prayed for his nation many times before, but never here, never in front of the curtain, never in this place. There are people praying outside, he's praying inside. And you can imagine him just pouring out his elderly heart. Oh, God, have mercy on your people. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to be faithful to that covenant that we made with you back at Mount Sinai. Oh, God, keep your promises. Keep your promises that you made to our father, Abraham. Oh, God, would you deliver us from this Roman bondage that we're in? Oh, God, will you send us the promised Messiah? Will you make us a holy people? Will you make us a blessed people? And so here's Zechariah praying. And then suddenly, as he's praying, it's an angel. An angel appears. Luke tells us that the angel appears at, at the right side of the altar of incense, which means it's the angel's right in front of the holy curtain. It, it's interesting. Luke tells us absolutely nothing of what this angel looked like. Uh, we know that angels are created beings like us. Humans do not become angels when they die. We are two very different creatures. Angels are spiritual creatures, which means they're invisible. They do not have bodies like us. They are not physical beings. And yet God has given angels the ability to appear in various forms. And throughout the Bible, angels often appear in the form of men. Um, sometimes they appear as men and you don't even know they're angels, right? Hebrews tells us people have entertained angels unawares. They had no idea they were talking to an angel. But at other times, it seems to be clear that even if they appear in the form of a man, there's some, maybe they're glowing, maybe they're radiant, that something shows this is not just a man, this is an angel. And it seems likely that that's the case here. Because when Zechariah sees this, this man, this angel, he, he doesn't assume somebody has snuck into the temple, right? He understands this is an angel, and immediately he is trembling, and immediately he is filled with fear. And the angel speaks to him, do, do not be afraid, Zechariah, he calls his name, 
Right? The angel knows his name. The angel, the angel speaks his name. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And then for five verses in our Bible, the angel just keeps talking. Zechariah is recovering. The angel is talking. And he tells Zechariah that his prayer has been answered. And his wife shall give birth to a son. And it's interesting because the commentators here, they all disagree on which prayer is being answered. Uh, we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth have been unable to have children. Surely they prayed many, many hundreds, thousands of prayers over the years for a child. But their childbearing years have now passed. So it's very possible they had stopped praying for a child at this point. But here was Zechariah in the temple fulfilling his priestly duty, and he's just been praying that God would bless Israel. So which prayer is being answered? The prayer for, for God to give them a child or prayer for God to finally come and bless Israel and bring about the day of the Messiah? And the answer, of course, is it's both. <laughs> both prayers are being answered in one great act. For now, after so many years, God is going to give Zechariah and Elizabeth a child. And that child is going to be the one promised in Malachi who will prepare the way for the day of the Lord and the coming of a Messiah. It's been 400 years since the prophet's been on the scene. 400 years for the faithful who've been praying and crying out to God, send us a word, send us a new message from you that we might know how much longer. And now the wait is over. The angel goes on to tell Zechariah about this son that God is giving them. We learn here the mission of John the Baptist. We're not even going to touch it this morning. We're going to spend all next Sunday on who John the Baptist is to be and what his purpose is and his mission. But for now, put yourself back in Zechariah's sandals. Look at how he responds to this. Okay? Angel speaking five verses. Zechariah's recovering from fear. His heart's beating a thousand miles a minute. And then verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. Take away my reproach among people. So how does Zechariah respond to this good news, this, this great promise, this declaration of a miracle son? His response, how shall I know this? 
how shall I know this? Even though he's speaking with an angel in the holy place of the temple, his reason and his logic are working against him. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years, he says. We can't have a son. We're too old. Isn't that amazing that that's his response? This man knows his Old Testament. He knows what happened with Abraham and Sarah, their miracle son. He knows what happened with Isaac and with Rebekah. He knows the story of Hannah and the birth of Samuel. And he's talking to an angel. I mean, what, what more evidence do you need that these things will come true? And I'll just be honest, I think what's happened is that he had hoped and longed for a child for so long that eventually he didn't want to be disappointed anymore. And he had kind of put a wall around that in his heart. He had probably told himself 10,000 times before, it's too late now, I am too old. That when the very thought, when the very idea was put before him again, even by an angel, I think it was just that immediate inward heart protection reaction. This is, no, 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 it can't be true. I'm too old. That he had built over years. But I have no idea. That's my speculation of why that is what came out of his mouth. But because he didn't believe, because he did not take God at his word, we now have the discipline of God. The angel declares that he's not just any angel. Oh, there are myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. But this angel, this is Gabriel. This angel is the same angel that spoke with Daniel many centuries before. This, this is the angel that helped Daniel understand the visions. Angels don't die. Angels continue to exist. The angels that exist today are the same angels that existed in Zechariah's day and the same angels that existed when God created them at the beginning of all things. And you know what? We don't know many names of angels. We only know like two, maybe a few more. And so here's one whose name Zechariah knows. This is an elite angel. This is, this is an angel who has been given jobs of supreme importance in the plans of God. I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. Zechariah, you think what's beyond that curtain is impressive? The special presence of God just beyond that curtain is only a tiny picture of the real holy of holies, the real most holy place, heaven itself. And you know what, Zechariah? That's where I stand. That's where I live. That's where I dwell. Zechariah, I'm not in the type. I'm in the antitype. I'm not in the shadow. I'm in the reality. I know what it is to stand in the actual glorious, special presence of God. And I was sent... Not here on my own volition, I was sent to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things took place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You, you can imagine what it was like for the people outside. There's been a delay. Do we need to send somebody in after him? Is everything okay in there? What do we do? And then he finally emerges and he can't speak. He can't speak. He can communicate through signs. He can't speak to his wife. He, he has to either write or he has to 
use signs to try and tell her what has happened. And it's in this condition that he has to go home. And for months, many months, he will remain a mute man. All right, lessons. Mount Hermon, this this passage comes to us with two calls. I'm just going to give you two calls that I think this passage brings upon our lives. And the first is this. This passage presents us with a call to prayer. This passage calls us to be a people of devoted, earnest, persistent prayer. And why? Because God really does hear. And he really does answer. And he does so in his own time. Um, Sometimes his answer comes much later than we ever expected. But we see here that the desire of Zechariah, the desire of Elizabeth for so many years, their prayer for a child, it is being answered and is being answered beyond what they had dreamed, beyond what they had imagined or ever thought. And it's not just their prayers being answered here. Because the faithful remnant in Israel have been praying for centuries for the prophet to come. The one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, the one promised by Malachi, who would make straight the ways of the Lord, the one that must come before the Messiah would come. They've been praying. Uh, Who knows how many hundreds, thousands of faithful remnant over 400 years praying. And now finally, in answer to those prayers, God is sending the new Elijah. Friends, I would just ask you, is there something that you long for God to do? Are you praying? Maybe you prayed for years and years and then you got discouraged and you left off praying. Do you not see what's being taught here? Don't put a timetable on the Lord your God. His purposes are grander than you or I know. And so keep praying. It is his joy to answer the prayers of his children. God does not sit in heaven with his divine arms crossed, grumpily saying no to your requests. Your father loves you and he never says no unless fatherly love requires it. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Jesus will later say, which one of you, if his son asks him for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So friends, don't doubt the generous heart of God. Run to him with your requests. Keep praying and don't lose heart. Not One prayer will fall to the ground. There's no such thing as a wasted prayer when you pray humbly and earnestly to your father. Alexander McLaren said, the prayer that begins with trustfulness and passes on into waiting, even while in sorrow and sore need, will always end in thankfulness and triumph and praise. And then there is a second call to us from this passage. It's the word believe. Believe. Because you see, even 
A godly, faithful man like Zechariah fell into unbelief when he was surprised by such good news. He wasn't even doubting that the word was from God. He wasn't wasn't doubting that this was God's messenger. He was doubting the message itself. It just seemed too good to be true. His logic had left out a very important piece of data. Nothing is impossible with God. Zechariah asked for more evidence. How shall I know this? In this moment of unbelief, the word of God was not enough for him. He thought he needed more. He thought he needed a sign. He thought he needed something else besides the word that had come to him from God. Mount Hermon, when God has given us his word on a matter, that's enough for us. When we have God's word, it is sufficient. Who is more reliable than God? Can anyone hold back God's arm? Can anybody keep God from doing what he has promised? Is there anyone stronger than him? Can anyone change God's mind or cause him to take back his word? No, our God is faithful and he's faithful through and through and he fulfills all his perfect will. You've seen the bumper sticker. It says, God says it. I believe it. That settles it. That's fine. It could take out the middle part. God says it. That settles it. Whether we believe it or not, that's really irrelevant. If God says it, that settles it. And so I just wonder this morning, is there any glorious truth that God has shown you in his word that you're doubting? Is there some wonderful good news, some wonderful reality promised to you in the Bible? And you're you're saying, but how shall I know this? Are there promises in the Bible that raise your objections, right? But, but that's impossible. But that's, that's not how things normally work, right? The moment you believed on Christ, your sins, past, present, and future were forgiven. Do you believe it? The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, dear Christian. Do you believe it? He is working everything, absolutely everything, from the flight of the bumblebee to the orbit of planets for your eternal good. Do you believe it? One day, he is going to resurrect every single human body and bring them back together. And for those who are going to heaven, he will glorify those bodies and make them perfect. And you say, Justin, those those bodies deteriorated and the atoms have gone into other things. And some people died in the ocean. And and, and there's, I don't know how it's all going to work. But do you believe it? Nothing is impossible with God. And so, friends, before the power of God, every objection must fall. When God has declared something, it is certain. You do not have to understand it. Thank God he is not bound by what we can comprehend. Aren't you glad he is not bound by what we can comprehend? We are simply called to believe what he has spoken. 
And for those who have believed on Jesus, what he has spoken to us is glorious, wonderful news. It is good news, but it is not too good to be true. Because when God can do anything, there is no such thing as news too good to be true. Amen? Let us be people of prayer. Let us be people of faith.